Heavenly Father, we do. We gather around your throne. And Lord, we know that it is that throne where sovereignly you control all things. And Heavenly Father, as we gather around the throne, Lord, I pray that you will whisper in the ear of the saint who is guilty about the past, who is concerned about the present, who is fearful about the future. Lord, I pray that you would whisper in the saint's ear, I forgive you in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. I am taking care of you in the present. And I am committed to your future. Lord, I pray that you will whisper in the saint's ear of your love, of your mercy, of your grace, of your presence. Lord, I pray that you will whisper in the saint's ear that evil is not going to triumph. And that we will overcome evil by doing good. Lord, I pray that you will whisper in the saint's ear, I've placed you in that place. And I'm going to take care of you. In your marriage, in your job, in your circumstances, in that deep, dark, painful circumstance that you find yourself in. Lord, I pray that you would whisper in the saint's ear, I'm growing you, I'm maturing you, I'm molding you, and I'm shaping you into the image of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would whisper in that saint's ear, I'm in control of the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 8, where we left off, beginning in verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. At the end of the chapter, you'll remember that Daniel is touched by an angel. This is the second vision that he has received. And the angel approaches Daniel, and that encounter generates fear. If you look in verse 17, it says, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. The angel says, look, I'm going to make known to you what's going to happen in the latter time of the indignation. If you look at verse 19, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. And again in verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom. What does that make you think? This is the end. This has been called the final curtain. This has been called 
Judgment Day. This has been called the Day of the Lord. And historically, the angel has pointed to a collapse of a Greek kingdom and the emergence of a Roman kingdom, the emergence of a type and a picture of the Antichrist and Antiochus Epiphanes. But now, all of a sudden, Daniel is transported to the time of the end. The angel points Daniel, known as the latter time of the indignation. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's called the tribulation, or what in the Old Testament has been called the time of Jacob's sorrow, or the time of Jacob's trouble, the time when God's wrath is poured upon the world. And this time, listen carefully, is a time that has been set aside by God to fulfill His plans and His purpose. To judge evil nations and evil people. And it's at this time that's been set aside. A time that looks like a temporary victory for evil. A time when the Antichrist, a time when the man that Daniel describes as the man with fierce features will oppose God and he will oppose the people of God. When I was very, very young, there was a man elected president of the United States. His name was John F. Kennedy. And he wrote a book in 1955 on his bedside. He had chronic back problems. He was injured in World War II. His PT boat had sunk, and he had literally broken his back, but had found a way to swim to shore. And he had reoccurring problems with it. And while he was on his hospital bed, he wrote a book called Profiles in Courage. Anyone sort of my age might remember it. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1956. It highlighted stories of great courage of senators in times past. Years later, it was discovered that the book almost certainly had been written by a ghostwriter. John F. Kennedy's speechwriter, Theodore Sorensen. The book of Daniel even though it's written by Daniel, also has an invisible partner. And the ghost writer is none other than the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost who occupies eternity, who knows the beginning from the end, who understands all things from before time began until time will end. Daniel's pen or stylus may have been the vehicle that God used to write these words, but it's the Holy Spirit who's responsible for the content of this message. And look what it says. We begin with the king with the fierce features. Remember, we looked at Antiochus. Now we look at the Antichrist. He is dramatic in appearance. It begins in chapter 8, verse 23. Look what it says. And in the latter time of their kingdom. Again, we're talking about the Greek collapse of Antiochus, but then we're also talking about a future kingdom, the latter time of the collapse of Gentile powers and the emergence, if you will, of the, of the people of Israel, the kingdoms of Greece, and the transgressors have reached their fullness. And so it says, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness... That means when evil has come to the top, when the line has finally come to the, the terminus, the, the idea when the transgressors have reached their fullness, the implication being that there's going to be a time when evil, wickedness, and rebellion will have reached its apex, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands Sinister schemes. In the Hebrew, it means dark sentences. The idea being riddles, enigmas, problems, circumstances. How do you provide security and safety in a, in a world economy where you have money that's based on nothing? How do you 
create a global governance? How do you create peace on the earth? How do you create the absence of disease? How do you create and solve the problems that face all of humanity? And apparently, whoever this particular person is, they're going to come forward with revolutionary concepts that are going to address these deep needs. It says towards the end of their kingdom. Again, the kingdoms that emerge from Alexander, the kingdoms of Greece. And it's interesting. There is a ripening. Now, this is important. Sin ripens. And so does holiness. Do you realize that you can cultivate a life of rebellion and disobedience? Or you can cultivate a life of obedience and honor. Like I said to you the last time, you're either walking towards God or you're walking away from God. There is a maturation process. And in that maturation process, there is a beginning and a middle and an end. And the Bible talks about it. You'll remember in the Old Testament, it says that when the cup of Pharaoh's iniquity became full, God's judgment fell. When the children of Israel were in captivity for some 400 years, when their cries had been heard over and over again, When the cup of iniquity had run its course, God at exactly the right time was going to judge Pharaoh and and release the children of Israel from their captivity. Human beings in the past and human beings in the present and human beings in the future have run a course that has been true in every generation. And that truth is they increase in goodness or they increase in wickedness. And so will you. Right at this very moment. Right at this very moment, you're increasing in goodness. Or you're increasing in wickedness. You should pause and just quietly, under your breath, cry out to God and say, Lord, am I increasing in goodness? Or am I increasing in wickedness? Are you becoming more sinful or more holy? Are you becoming more obedient or less obedient? If for whatever reason you're less obedient... I have good news for you. You can stop in your tracks. At this very moment, you can stop in your mental, emotional, and spiritual tracks. And you can say, Lord, I've I've turned my back and I've wandered away. And now I want to go in the direction of humility and obedience and submission to you. And you know why this is important? Because when you begin that subtle process of walking away from the Lord, I guarantee you that the process becomes, it it becomes a little bit more worse. You see, evil doesn't know any boundaries. Evil doesn't know when to stop. Make no mistake about it, I'm... I'm not talking about some impersonal substance or some philosophical force. I'm talking about evil people and evil spirits. I am talking about wickedness that reigns in the heart of an individual who is dead set against obeying God. And if for whatever reason you've given yourself permission to disobey God, make no mistake about it, that permission will continue and continue and continue until you put a stop to it. And I'm encouraging you to put a stop to it right at this very moment. In the Old Testament, we read about the judgment of the Amorites, which would come when their iniquity had reached its fullness. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, sin in nations as well as individuals has a terminus, an end point, a point where God says, guess what? The cup of iniquity in your life has reached its limit, and I'm not going to allow it to continue. This is why Paul writes in the New Testament and he says, Hey, guess what? Do yourself a favor. Evaluate your own heart. So that the Lord doesn't have to. In this sense. If you judge yourself, if you go, Lord, just like the psalmist, 
Search me. Know my heart. See if there's any, any wicked way in me. Because in the end, sin brings judgment. The kingdom that builds itself on the principles contrary to the word of God and the character of God will collapse under the weight of its own wickedness. It's been true of every civilization. Every civilization that has rebelled and disobeyed God has collapsed under the weight of its own wickedness. And I wish I could tell you that America would be the exception. But I'd be lying to you. And then you should do yourself a favor and get up out of your seat and walk through those doors and leave the church and never come back. Because if I'm willing to lie to you about that important subject, I might be willing to lie to you about other important subjects. And so I have a responsibility to tell you the truth. But just like a civilization collapses under the weight of its own wickedness, so so do families. And so do individuals. And if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time for you to walk in holiness and purity, if ever there was a time for you to walk in submission and and obedience to Jesus, it's now. If ever there was a time for you to pray for your husbands, it's now. If ever there was a time to pray for your wives and your family, it's now. If ever there was a time for you to cultivate godly principles in your children, it is now. Sin, remember, is transgression. Sin is crossing the border that God has established. Sin is walking past the line that God has drawn for you. And it will lead to your life being broken by forces that you can't control. And that's the wicked perversity of sin. It invites you to believe that you have a handle on that little pet transgression. I told you the story about the man who raised a little lion cub from its youth and he cared for it and he tenderly nurtured it and he fed it by hand and the lion grew up into an adult lion and he kept it in the bathroom and then one day the lion attacked him and ate him. He thought since he cultivated and knew it and had affection for it that he could control it. But the same is true of sin. It will lead your life and it will break you by forces that you can't control. And you'll remember that Satan sought to destroy Jesus in what has rightly been called the great sin, the worst sin. Remember what Satan tried to do. He tried to eliminate Jesus because by eliminating Jesus, he thought that he could eliminate the plan of God. But when he placed and he, when the powers of darkness, when, when the powers of darkness were used as instruments to place Jesus on the cross of Calvary, when Satan sought to destroy Jesus, Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, was able to destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to the bondage. Can you imagine? Satan thought he was winning the best victory ever, but the cross of Calvary became the instrument whereby your sin could be forgiven and you could be reconciled to God. And see, that is the wickedness of sin. That's the perversity of sin. It always goes further, and when it goes past a particular point, it sows the seed of its own destruction. The same could be said of Paul. You remember when he was imprisoned? Can you imagine Paul, the apostle, at the end of his ministry? He winds up in a Roman jail. And can you imagine Satan whispering in his ear, You're through! Your ministry is through! Your effectiveness is through! Finally, I've got Paul off the beaten roads of Rome. I've got him in a Roman dungeon where he can't do any harm. And then he writes Ephesians and Philippians. And Colossians. And the little epistle of Philemon. A little bit later next year, we're going to be going to Corinth. And we're going to be visiting Philippi. And we're going to be visiting Ephesus. And you know what's there? Ruins. Ruins. Can you imagine if we had the privilege of talking to Paul at this very moment? We said, hey, Paul, you know what you're most remembered for? 
Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Remember all of those times that you thought you were in timeout? You wrote timeless letters that had been read by Christians in every generation? You see, God gave you this amazing privilege not to just simply speak to the people in your generation, but you had this amazing privilege to speak to people in every generation. And guess what? Right when Satan thinks that he has you by the throat, when your wife is getting ready to leave, when your husband is getting ready to believe, to leave, when, when the boss says to you, guess what, you don't have a job anymore. When your world seems to be collapsing in and around you, when evil seems to be having its way, make no mistake about it, evil always inevitably oversteps its boundary. The prophet Habakkuk writes about the presence of evil in his day and the patient promise to wait because there's a God who punishes evil and evildoers. And that, my friends, becomes the theme of Daniel chapter 8. God will eventually punish evil and evildoers. And so when your friends and your families ask the question, how do you explain suffering? How do you explain abuse? How do you explain illness? And why isn't God doing something about it? God is doing something about it. God has done something about it and continues to do something about it and will ultimately do something about it. He will punish evil and evildoers. The prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3 verse 17 wrote, Though the fig may not blossom nor fruit be on vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know what the prophet Habakkuk is saying? There's no fruit on the trees. There's no light and cooking oil. The crops have failed. The flock has died. There's no cow in the barn. But the absence of those things doesn't mean the absence of joy in the Lord and worship and salvation, knowing that in that emptiness there will still come a time of fullness. In the time of deprivation, the time of deprivation should lead to a time of dependence. As you love Him more and depend upon Him more, the Antichrist has the face of evil, he's dramatic in his appearance. He's destined to do evil. When will the Antichrist come? When evil has reached its end point. When things are at their worst. When, when you can't, when you're thinking, could, could it get worse than even now? Okay, let's imagine a world where it's worse than now. Oh, it's worse than that. It would appear that whatever goodness or decency has been lifted, whatever prohibitions God has put in place in order to make sure goodness and decency could extend into the, the future, those prohibitions or restraints are lifted. Could this be the rapture of the church? I believe that it is. In other words, there's going to come a time when things will get worse and worse, not better and better. And when things get worse and worse and worse, there is going to be a final, if you will, pulling of the plug. Now, there are many people who would disagree with me. And I will defend to the death your right to be wrong. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it makes it abundantly clear. Paul writes and he says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the Lord. But that day won't come. But an angel will shout from heaven and the Lord will return. The taking away of the church, I suspect, will be the final moral plug that's pulled and two kinds of things are going to take place and I believe that the rapture is very near I could be wrong 
It could be 10 years away. It could be 100 years away. It could be 1,000 years away. But there is a generation that will be fully and finally taken. And there will be two responses. Dread and fear and joy. Do you know why there will be dread and fear? Because there will be a remnant who will say, Oh my God, everything in the Bible was true! All of that crazy talk by those crazy Christians. But then there's going to be another group. They're going to literally, it's going to be like Christmas and your birthday and every celebration combined because guess what? You're gone. You are gone. You are gone. And for them, it means unrestricted, unprohibited, unimagined wickedness and evil. Because now that you're gone, guess what? They will now have the freedom to embrace every perverted and distorted thing that their heart desires. They'll be free to pursue wickedness at their leisure. And I want you to think just for a moment. It's at that point of unrestricted wickedness that the Antichrist shows up. And they will love him. You know, there is in the scriptures um, a hermeneutic principle. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. And and there is a, a thing called the double reference principle. And let me help you understand what that is. Because the king with fierce features, is this Antiochus? In a certain sense it is historically. Is this a future king? The Antichrist that the Bible speaks so prevalently about? I think that the answer is yes. And see, sometimes statements in the Bible can have two or more meanings. Remember, Adam before the fall is called the first man. And Jesus is called the second Adam. Is Jesus the reincarnation of Adam? No. But just like Adam is the federal head of humanity, Jesus is the federal head of humanity. Paul argues that just like in Adam, all people die. In Jesus, all people can be saved. Eve before the fall is a type and a picture of the bride of Christ. In other words, before the fall, here is this man. He's put to sleep. His side is opened. A rib is removed. And out of his side, out of his wound, out of the very substance of his being, emerges a bride. And that becomes a perfect picture of the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross, dying for your sins. A Roman spear penetrating his ribcage, his heart, the percardium sac ripped open blood and water coming forth and out of that sacrifice comes you and you and you a bride a constant companion I think of Abel and Noah and the ark there are types of Jesus Um, Noah and the ark, Joseph and Moses, Melchizedek and Joshua, the list could go on and on. But just like there is a typology or a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, there is for good. There's also a type and a picture of evil. I think of Cain and Nimrod and Antiochus, who we've already learned about, and Herod, who will destroy the children. And with Cain and Nimrod and Antiochus and Herod, each of them give us a tiny picture of the character, the wickedness, the perversion of the Superman, the future man who will come. And just like Cain, the man who rejects sacrifice by blood, just like Nimrod, the man who builds a city and a civilization apart from God, just like Antiochus, who we've already learned about, the man who hates God and hates God's people and presents himself as God. And just like Herod, the man who would kill the baby Jesus and become king himself. We're given a picture, a tiny glimpse into what the future holds. Someone once said that the heart writes itself firmly on the face. Hey, you know what? You can't be responsible for the face that you were born with. 
But every person after 50 is responsible for the face that they have. You made that face. And many of you aren't going quietly into the night. So, no, I don't want gift I don't want Botox gift cards this year, okay? No, thank you. Antiochus, his fearsome features were impudence and insolence and viciousness. And remember last week I told you that Antiochus was handsome. He was beautiful. But he didn't fear God. And he becomes a type, a picture of the masterpiece of iniquity. This Antichrist is a master of deceit and diplomacy with advanced degrees and dark practices and wicked schemes. That's why it says of him, a king shall arise, having fierce features, understanding sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. You'll note that this evil man, he is wise. He is schooled. He has advanced degrees in wickedness and he is inspired and energized by Satan himself. This evil man is insincere and subtle and he will wreak havoc not simply on the Jews but on the Gentiles and the sinister schemes like I said are dark sentences. He substitutes diplomacy for deceit. He uses the word patriotism as a guise to plunder and murder and he will eventually defy both God and man and then all of a sudden you will see the cup start to fill and it will fill the bottom of the cup and it will reach halfway to the cup and it will go all the way to the top of the cup and the wickedness and sin will spill over and make no mistake about it. His evil will have a beginning. It will have a middle. And it will have an end. The expression, who understands sinister schemes, probably refers to his ability, like I said, to solve problems. But it also, I think, is a reference to his dynamic leadership. He will be a person who will walk out onto the world's stage. And everyone will look to him. And they'll use terms to describe him. Like Savior. And Messiah. And Deliverer. He will be dynamic in his leadership, but he will be demonic in his power. Look at verse 24 again. His power shall be mighty, but it's not his own power. In other words, this isn't some intrinsic ability that he has in and of himself. His power comes from a source that clearly isn't human. It's demonic. I would even go so far as to say satanic. Some people believe this, it's a kind of demonic control or demonic possession. I suspect that it's that and more. I suspect that this is a person who is completely, fundamentally, unmistakably, and thoroughly yielded to Satan's control. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it says that the dragon gave to Antichrist his power. It was the dragon who gave him his power, his seat. That means the place where he rules and his authority in the future when the Antichrist is revealed, when he walks among us, he will be filled with Satan's presence. And in that filling of Satan's presence, it will give him a pro, an unrestricted ability to act out unspeakable evil. Remember, we had a tiny, tiny taste of it with Antiochus. 
Remember what we learned the last time. A man where there is nothing sacred. There's nothing valuable. There's no perversity or wickedness. There's no line that he's willing to not cross. He will go anywhere and do anything to advance his agenda. I'm going to suggest to you that in the past, great men, leaders, types, and pictures of the Antichrist have been possessed by evil spirits. Antiochus was clearly possessed. Caligula was clearly possessed by demons. The future Antichrist? Possession isn't the right word to describe him. He is the sum and the substance of uninhibited evil. He's he's not only dynamic in his leadership and demonic in his power, but he's destructive in his reign. Look what it says. He shall destroy fearfully. The whole world will be taken by this a, a person's ability to utterly defeat his enemies. The idea being he will be opposed and he will overthrow. He will be opposed. He will win every election. He will, oppo- he will, he will defeat every foe. His power and his authority will seem unstoppable. He will thrive. He will destroy the mighty and the holy people. Antiochus did this for a season. And in a very real sense, the Antichrist, the future Antichrist, will hope to complete what Antiochus failed to do, what Haman failed to do, what Herod failed to do, what Hitler failed to do. This Antichrist, he will attempt to destroy the people of God with the express purpose of thwarting the promises of God and the plan of God. There are prophecies in the book of Revelation that speak of a future time where the blood rises so liberally that literally valleys and mountains and whole territories are filled with blood up until a horse's bridle. Do you know how many human beings you have to pop to create a river of blood? That's the picture that the Bible gives. The stench of rotting carcasses will line the shore and passing ships on on board will hold their nose because the stench of the decay of human flesh will become too overwhelming. And by the way, the worst stories of Antiochus Epiphanes remain untold. But even this madman couldn't exceed the hellish fury that the Antichrist will bring upon the world. And that's the picture that the Bible gives us. Imagine a world where one man is free to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. And now, for maybe the second or the third time in all of human history, the saying that's given in the New Testament will come true. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? He has everything and everyone. Unlimited power, unlimited resources, unlimited property, and you lose your soul. In verse 25 it says, Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And so look what it says. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper in his rule. You know, my mom had a saying over and over again to us kids. I don't know how many kids were in your family, but maybe you played games when you were growing up. And sometimes, maybe unlike me, no, exactly like me, you were tempted to cheat at Monopoly or at Yahtzee. You turned to die when no one was looking. You pocketed a few hundred dollars on the Monopoly board. And my mother would say, Gino, cheaters never prosper. 
Cheaters never prosper. Imagine a world where that's exactly the opposite, where cheaters do prosper. As a matter of fact, they're the only ones who prosper. That's the future. People will laugh when they hear the words, cheaters never prosper. They'll go, (laughs) you're so naive. The coming Antichrist will destroy many. And it says, he will destroy them. Not in their poverty. Look what it says. In their prosperity. When they have everything that a person could want. Everything that a heart could imagine. And he will come and he will take it from them. He will be demonic in power, destructive in his reign. But look, he deifies himself. He makes himself God. And remember what I pointed out to you the last time. On on Antiochus Epiphany's coins were written the words Theos, Antiochus, Theos, Epiphanes, Antiochus the Great, God manifest. In other words, like the future Antichrist, this future Antichrist will elevate himself and he will proclaim to a watching world that he himself is deity. That the reason why he is able to do what he is able to do, his supernatural powers, his compelling presence, his answers to the world problems is evidence that there's something divine about him. But he will disguise his cruelty with promises of peace. Look in verse 25. In the old King James, it says, And by peace he shall destroy many. There will come a day when the future Antichrist will make a peace pact with the Jews and her neighbors, a covenant during the tribulation period. He will promise the Jews security and safety, temple worship, observance of the, of the Jewish feasts. He'll gain their confidence by deceit, and then he'll break his promise. And when that happens, literally, supernaturally, not just metaphorically, all hell will break loose, according to the book of Revelation. And it will be just like a made-for-TV movie where the natural and the supernatural will collide. The tribulation will begin in all of its explosive terror and suffering and the book of Revelation will begin to unfold and we're talking in a matter of weeks and then months And then just a very few years, one-third of the population of the planet Earth will be killed. Another third of that remaining two-thirds will be killed. And another third of that remaining will be killed. And the Bible says that the slaughter and the horror and the pain and the wickedness will be such that you'll see human beings, which were once plentiful, become rare that there will be more gold and silver on the earth than there are human beings. In 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 29, it says, And after two years' time, the king Antiochus sent his chief collector of tribute into the cities of Judah. He came to Jerusalem. He spoke words of peace to them in deceit. And they gave him credence. And he fell suddenly upon the city and smote it very sore and destroyed many of the people of Israel. Unquote. Antiochus did it in type. And the Antichrist will do it in an even greater type in the future. It's the same old story, isn't it? Promises of peace followed by destruction. And the Bible says the Antichrist will oppose and replace the Lord. And here the Lord God is called the Prince of Princes. But guess what? The Lord will defeat the Antichrist. And he will place him and the false prophet into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. I think I told you I had a guy on my radio program. He called and he said, You know, I can't imagine there's, I just can't imagine Jesus bombing Iraq. I mean, I can't imagine a Jesus who would do stuff like that. I go, Have you ever read the book of Revelation? 
Have you ever read the book of Revelation? Where in Revelation chapter 21, he comes and he comes on a white horse. Or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 19. And he comes, his eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are crowns. Verse 13, he, his, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And on the radio I said, hey, who, whose blood do you suppose that is? Oh, uh, I don't know. This is the blood of his enemies. And I ask this question. How did they die? I don't know. He killed them. Does that shock you? Surprise you? Disturb you? Does it shock you? Surprise you? Or disturb you? That Jesus Christ will deal with evil fully, finally, permanently. The Bible says, not only does he disguise his cruelty with promises of peace, he's destroyed without human hands. The future Antichrist won't be broken, it says. He will be broken, but not by human means. He's going to be supernaturally killed. Again, even like I said last week, and Antiochus gives us this type or example. He made every effort to wipe out the Jewish religion and, and to cast the image of Zeus into the temple. He became embittered. He promised to make Jerusalem one gigantic graveyard. And no sooner had he said that, but he was smitten with an incurable disease. And right when it looks like Antichrist will have fully, finally, completely eradicated all of humanity, Jesus will come back. He will be brought down supernaturally. The future Antichrist will not be killed by human agency. You know what Daniel's vision reminds us of? That no matter who you are, no matter what you think you are, no matter if you think that you're Alexander the Great, no matter if you think that you're Antiochus the Great, no matter if you think that you're Bill Gates the Great, no matter how much money, no matter how much power, no matter how much substance, no matter how much juice that you think that you have, every person without exception who chooses to live a life apart from God, defying God, rebelling against God, continuing in their wickedness, I, I can't stress this enough, it's going to end badly for you. My advice? Don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus loves you. He came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Do you realize that we're rarely more vulnerable than when we perceive ourselves as invincible? For the person who thinks that they're invincible apart from Christ, for the person who's, who thinks they're strong in their own strength, The Bible says that they'll be brought down low. There's a reason why Jesus says that the first will be last. And who's the person who saves their life? The one who loses it. The Bible says that King Uzziah, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, it says, When he was strong in his heart, he was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed. That means he crossed the border. He transgressed. He crossed the line that God had established against the Lord. He entered into the temple. He burnt incense on the altar of incense. He was a king who pretended that he was a priest. And guess what? He was struck with leprosy. Sin and guilt render us incapable of self-control. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Sin and guilt will cause people to do things that they never imagined that they could. And I want to ask you a question. Has sin or guilt 
caused you to do things that have also caused you to cry yourself to sleep at night? Have you ever done anything that you thought that you would never do? And it's because you imagined for just a brief moment that what you did didn't matter. But I want you to know something. Even that sin can be forgiven. How's Daniel different? In Daniel chapter 2, he said, that he didn't do anything apart from the Lord. In Daniel chapter 5, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I just want to point that out to you. Only those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are ultimately in control of their own lives. Do you want to take back your life? Do you want to take back your thinking and your living? Then invite the Holy Spirit to seize your heart and empower you with His presence so you can live the life that God has always intended you to live as a man or a woman of God. And look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, fainted. And I was sick for days. See, this is what will happen if you get all caught up in prophecy. It will just make you sick. I'm just teasing. One third of the Bible is made of prophecy. But it is important to ask the question, why did God allow Daniel to get sick? We know that sickness can come from Satan. It can even come as a result of judgment for sin. But I'm going to suggest something to you. For Daniel, it comes from a superabundance of revelation. And it's a superabundance of revelation. It is an encounter with the supernatural. But it isn't just a superabundance of revelation and an encounter with the supernatural. But it is a sympathy for the saints. In other words, this prophecy and this revelation created with him a, a heart of such deep concern. For the children of Israel who find themselves in captivity at this particular time because he sees the reality of what the future holds. We see Daniel so hurt by what the future holds that he fainted. And he was sick for days. And sometimes you might, as you read the Bible, as you see the certainty that God will judge evil, He will do it. Make no mistake about it. That it creates a kind of a pit in your stomach. It creates a kind of a pit in your stomach when you realize that the world, in opposition and rebellion against God faces a terrible, unmistakable, inevitable judgment. But again, here's the reality. Grace precedes judgment. And in the not-too-distant future, God will manifest His judgment. But now, He's manifesting His grace. Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, For I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then in Acts 20, 30, it says, Also from among yourselves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. And I've told you, when sin has reached its full measure, the Antichrist will come. And remember what else I've taught you. Both Antiochus and the Antichrist come on the scene, not simply on their own power or ability, but by supernatural powers. Both cause shocking devastation. Both crush armies and believers. Both use deceit to achieve their goals. Both seem superficially invincible. Both exalt themselves. Both destroy many when they feel at ease and secure. Both destroy the Lord. Both will be destroyed by the power of God. 
both will be defeated by a coming Savior. And you know what? When we read Daniel, we become more confident, more convinced, more certain than ever of God's Word. Some become fearful. But that's really not your job. As a matter of fact, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, You should be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. Can prophecy make you sick? I think so. Because there's not, even though one third of the Bible is prophecy, guess what another third is? Promise. Let me do yourself a favor. For every prophecy you read, read two promises. Warren Wiersbe's note is very, very helpful. At the end, look what it says. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. But look at the end. But afterward, I arose, went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. In spite of all of this, guess what? He got up and he went about the king's business. And in spite of everything that you see around you, in spite of everything that you see around you, At some point, you need to get up and be about your king's business. Warren Wiersbe writes, But his investigation into God's prophetic program wasn't a matter of satisfying curiosity or trying to appear knowledgeable before others. He was concerned about the people and the work that they had to do on the earth. He so identified with what he learned that it made him ill. Too many prophetic students don't wait before God for instruction and insight, nor do they feel burdened when they learn God's truth about the future. And then he writes, When he got over his weakness and sickness, the prophet went back to work for the king, And didn't tell anybody what he'd learned. But God still had more truth to teach him. God had more truth to teach him. And he was getting ready to receive it. There's more truth. It's coming in chapter 9. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know what to watch out for. We know what the Antichrist will look like. He will oppose the Word of God. He will oppose the Son of God. He will oppose the people of God. But Lord, we know that those who oppose you and seek to destroy you seek to make the plan of God go away will ultimately fail. And that your promises will ultimately come true. That every man and every woman who desires to abandon their sin and embrace the Savior, every person willing to admit their guilt every person willing to embrace the provision that you've given to us, a perfect sacrifice, a Savior. Every person who's willing to come to Jesus on your terms will be saved. No wonder the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord, you shall be saved. And Lord, I wonder if there's a person like that here. They've known it in their head, but they've never embraced it in their heart. Lord, I pray that they would do that, that they would do exactly that now. 
And for the saint, Lord, who is cultivating habits of wickedness, Lord, I pray that they would abandon that sin. That they would drop it. And that they would turn and go in a different direction of obedience and submission to you. And Lord, we don't know how much time is left. We don't know how full the cup is. But Lord, it seems to be splashing over the edges. And so Lord, again, I pray that we will look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, I pray that these children would gather around the throne of heaven and that they would allow the Father to whisper in their ears, I love you. I'm thinking about you. I, I thought about you the very first thing this morning and all throughout the day. There's never a moment. There's never a moment. There's never a moment that your Heavenly Father isn't thinking of you personally and specifically and lovingly and caringly. And so, Lord, I pray that that love and that mercy and that grace would be allowed to speak into their hearts and that they would be encouraged. In Jesus' name.